Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm Ben. I'm Freddie. And on today's New Statesman podcast, recorded live at the Cambridge Literature Festival, we'll be talking about the fallout from Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, how Rishi Sunak's first month as Prime Minister has gone, and then we'll move on to some questions. So, just to take you through all of the things that were announced in the autumn statement, of which were all very, very, very uplifting. So there were a number of stealth taxes, so freeze on income tax, which means a lot of people paying a lot more tax because they'll be dragged into different tax bans. Jeremy Hunt also delayed some of the biggest spending cuts until after the next election. The Office for Budget Responsibility confirmed the UK's in recession. The Chancellor also lifted the cap on the council tax rises that local authorities can put in place without a referendum. The pensions triple lock was kept in place. Benefits were rose in line with inflation. And the OBR confirmed that there is a huge drop in living standards. And and it's all very pretty grim, isn't it? It's um, very miserable. It's yeah. very miserable. It's been a couple of days since then. The, the, the autumn statements had a little bit of time to, to percolate, and it's usually this time where the sort of, the truth of the budget yeah. starts to come out. The, the, the front pages the day after were, were pretty brutal. What do you think the reaction's been like, Freddie? Yeah, well, I think we know now where we are going to be in the next two years. We've had a very chaotic nine months. We've had new prime ministers, we've had new chancellors, but we know where the path is leading now, I think. So we can start thinking about the next general election. We can start thinking about how the government is going to perform, what they need to focus on. And I think because, as you said, the forecasts were so bad, they're in a dismal position. We're going to have an extended recession, They've said they're going to increase NHS funding and education funding, and that may, may be the case, and it'll help rebut some of Labour's attacks, but the NHS is still going to be in an awful position, schools are still going to be in an awful position, and the, the cash terms may go up, but people are still going to have bad experience with public services. So I think they're going to have a very, very tricky time. Yeah, I think that's a bit of an understatement. Ben, you're our polling expert. Is the public really looking forward to tax rises? <laughs> Anyone looking forward to the tax rises? <laughs> Not really. To be honest, to be honest with you, one thing I noticed in the immediate aftermath of the budget, no, autumn statement, or whatever it was called, Fiscal really. event. Fiscal event. It was quite the event, but the thing is, no one really noticed it. Uh, about, if you, if you get asked the public, what did you think of the uh, measures announced, the policies announced, around about 20-something percent said they were good, 20-something percent said they were bad, and the rest didn't have a clue. This was one of those budgets, those autumn statements, that kind of just didn't do much for you. Mm. Okay, we all know the cost of living is increasing. We all know fuel bills are going to get worse for each and every one of us here over the course of the next year or so. The government's just lessened that just by a little bit, but it's still going to get worse for you anyway. So you should be grateful, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's what they want you to be. And so that, that's what, it's a budget that claims to reckon with the realities of now claims to take the difficult decisions, the same lines put, put out by David Cameron in 2010. It's leaving it until the, after the next election. It's leaving it until the next government. And I, 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 if you look at historical polling, if you fall as far as this government has fallen, you do not recover to lead the, oppo to lead the opposition at the next election. Historically speaking, of course, historical um, 
sometimes you can, you can best them, but the likelihood of that, I put between zero and 5% of the government recovering by the next election. So really, they, they, it's, it's not compassionate conservatism. It's not common sense conservatism. It is conservatism that's just throwing it or powering it off to the next guy, which is, which is a, bit of a bit of a shame here. There's something about the budget and, and budget statement event and sooner <laughs> that, yeah, just, just, just flies you by. I think, I think it was Churchill that allegedly made the comment about a Clement Attlee, which is that an empty taxi pulled up and Clement Attlee got out. You can say the same about Rishi Sunak, really. He's just there and he's not really impressing. He's a bit, he's a bit John Major, but without the, the cricketer's appeal, is he? He's just, he's just there. He's going to be the one that will lose to Keir Starmer, probably, if you trust the current polling. Yeah, we, we were talking about this earlier. The Sunak doesn't really have the gravitas or the charisma to bring his party with him. It was interesting, before the autumn statement in the Commons, Sunak was doing a statement on the G20. No one was listening, his backbenchers weren't listening, the Speaker had to stand up and ask them to quieten down. So that's just a very bad sign. It's, it speaks to his style as well, which is the administrator coming in to try and solve the problems. But that is not enough when you're that far back in the polls. So yeah, his style matters as well and it's not good for him. Yeah. Wow, tell us what you really think, guys. <laughs> so uh, there was a lot of talk in the, in the run-up to, to, to the budget statement fiscal event that there may, may be some huge Tory rebellions after yeah. it. Those don't really seem to have materialised. What's, what's it looking like within the party, do you think? I, I feel like it's calmed down. Yeah. Well, I think uh, lots of people thought Sunak would be this clean break with the past, but all he's done is inherited a party that's very disunified and it's also riddled with scandal. We saw that in the first two weeks of his premiership, we were already talking about Braverman in the cabinet having six days before uh, resigned and then we had the Williamson affair. So he can't escape the party of Truss and Johnson. So hence he's having such a bad time of it. You can't just change the person at top. The MPs are still the same and those are the people that become ministers, cabinet ministers. That pool of people has been the same now for a very long time and that is very tricky for the party. So in terms of going forward, you're already seeing that disunity come out day by day. That's been the story. I think I've written the word disunity so many times in the past yeah. three weeks. You've seen it on tax rises. We've had people come out. We've already had, there was a mooted rise in fuel duty, Priti Patel and other MPs have already written to the Chancellor saying, no, this can't go ahead. So the divisions are already there, and that's completely going to constrain what the government can do in the next two years. Yeah. I also think, because of the, the, the polling situation that you outlined, Ben, that a lot of Conservatives know this is their one shot of, yeah. of shoring up as many seats as they possibly can. So the price of going out there and voting against anything that Jeremy Hunt has put forward this week is, is, a, is a huge risk, is a bigger risk than it might be, mm. might be normally, I think. So I wonder if that's holding them together as well. But we did see Esther McVeigh, the Conser yeah. Conservative MP, say, I'm not going to vote for any tax rises unless you, yeah. unless you slash HHS2. And Jeremy Hunt has not slashed HHS2. <laughs> and I, I'm not picking up yeah. any, any sign that, that she's carrying anyone with her or that there's going to be any kind of rebellion. And I don't know if you guys have, are feeling differently about that. But that's well, it's interesting because, because it's not a budget, you don't have the four to five days of debate in the Commons afterwards, and then you normally have a vote on a financial bill. We don't have that. It was just a statement to the Commons. You have a few questions and then it's done. So what they need to do now is introduce various finance bills over the next few months or so uh, to try and put this into law. And they're the moments we're going to see yeah. uh, tension in the Commons and that's, this disunity actually matter. I think one of the problems with this budget is it, it really is is going to be a lot of, it's quite painful for a lot of people who are natural Tory voters, yeah. who, who are already working. It, it, it goes to some people who are higher earners as well. How much of a problem is that going to be, do you think? Oh, right. Well, you've probably heard of the squeeze middle quite a lot, squeeze middle class. And I don't know if, it, if, if we talked about it 12 years ago in 2010. Squeeze middle, do you think? It was mentioned as a, as a voter group. It kind of existed now. So rewind yourself to 2010. You had about 15 years of relatively good economic growth. You put your kids in schools under new labour, you bought a house under new labour, and really you were getting on. You were doing it quite good for yourself. You've just had 12 years of restrained public budgets, 12 years of wage growth that really is not growing at all. Wages haven't grown by much, if at all, over the course of the 12 years. If you chart it by recent prices or 2015 prices, wages go up and up and up until 2008. And then from 2008 till about 13, 14, they slide down. By 14 to 15, they go back up a little bit and then they just stay there and they haven't really gone higher since then. We have had 12 years of stagnation. And so what you get from that 
is a middle class, the majority of a great, great portion of people who live in swing seats, target seats, the type of voters that need to be won round, who didn't grow up under New Labour, didn't grow up under relatively good economic growth. They've grown up squeezed. Okay, and so they, they are coming at budgets, they're coming at the Conservative Party with a completely different mindset. In 2010, the squeeze middle, the so-called the middle class basically were a lot more concerned about scroungers versus strivers. It was narratives like that that really hit through to voters because to be honest, your financial situation was in trouble because of the financial crash, but to be honest, for most of your, your adulthood it was okay. This time round, however, it has not been okay for the past 12 years. You have just got by. And now, are you getting by? Most of you experience universal credit, far be it for me to presume, but most voters in this country experience universal credit during the COVID crisis. Most voters experience hard times like they have never seen before in post-war history. Okay, you are not going to be looking at the Conservative Party with the same way you did in 2010. But it seems as though in 2010 you had Osborneites, you had Cameronites, mm. and we've got them back now. They're back at the helm and they think they can use the same language, the same rhetoric, the same policies almost to win you round. It's not going to work. And that's why the budget's fallen flat. That's why the Conservatives are still 20, 25 points behind the polls. That's why I say with some level of certainty, you should never be certain in polling, honestly. Everything's a risk. Polling is a science. Now, there's always a margin of error. But I, I have some semblance of almost near certainty that the next election is Labour's to win and that the, the likelihood of them losing their lead by then, I say zero to five percent, it really is almost over for them. I also think as well as being in a, a problem in some of the areas that are already voting Conservative, I think some of the areas that they, they, they won in 2019, it's the, this budget's problematic for them as well. Yeah. So it's some of the squeeze on, on, their, on their wages will be more keenly felt in those areas. They're more reliant on cars. Wages are lower in the first place. So yeah. Commuterville, England, really. <laughs> yeah. I, would, would I call Cambridge Commuterville, England? No. Bits around Cambridge. Bits around South Cambridgeshire, East Cambridgeshire, where you use your car to get around a lot because public transport can be a bit naff, can't it? Sorry, yeah, I, I grew up in North York, rural North Yorkshire, right, and I used to have a bus service that I could always rely on every day, three times, three chances to get the bus every day. <laughs> and then by about 2013, 14, it had been cut to one, and the chances are the bus driver really wasn't that bothered, so that you could never trust the service there. It's those types of places that have towns, but a good, decent portion of the public living in the countryside that are really going to suffer bigly. Bigly? Big time. That was a Trump Trumpian, Trumpian language there. <laughs> so to give examples, the bits around South Cambridgeshire, Lib Dems are going hard there, aren't they? You have rugby, which Labour could win probably for the first time since 10. Nuneaton, it's very, quite Brexit. I think it was quite Brexit backing so Nuneaton's hard. Nuneaton's a real bellwether. So yeah, it used it? to you be, know, used yeah. to be, but it's since been gone so safe, Tory. What so are the new bellwethers then, do you think? What are, what are the new bellwethers to watch out for? Swindon South, if you don't know where that is. And then you have also places where populations have moved. We are not the country we were 12 years ago. You have a more active 25 to 34-year-olds who, who were students, most of them were students under the coalition government. They have been turned away by, they still remember the Liberal Democrats, they're not really voting Liberal Democrat, most of them at least. But you have young people moving out of very expensive places into places like Worthing, near, near Brighton. The out, are you from Worthing, madam? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about, that is definitely one to watch because Labour's yeah, going yeah. hard there. Not, yeah, yeah. Uh, Canterbury was the first sign of that. Well, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the Corbyn surge. It was, it was basically as well, these types of 18 to 24 year olds and more particularly 25 to 34 year olds are starting to feel a pinch. Mm. Halfway through the austerity decade, they were starting to feel a pinch. Of course, of course the they would vote that revenge way. Revenge of the Remainers, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, sorry for the rant there. No, no, quite, you're quite all right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how Labour's responded this week and, how, and whether or not they've broken through. I felt like the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves's response was, is it step up in tone it's slightly yeah. more aggressive bit more attacking yeah. she really went went after the them failing to change non-dom tax status and pointing out that it was probably a measure blocked by number 10 and she, she also just really went after we've had 12 weeks of conservative party chaos for, and that for, and that's following 12, <coughs> 12 years of failure on the economy the, the Labour party is getting a lot more play on broadcast the, there is a feeling that they're starting to be really taken seriously on the economy and they've been head on in terms of polling on the economy as well, which is really Lib, the Lib Party's weak spot. Do you think that's safe now? Do you think it's no longer Lib as Achilles' heel or...? 
looking ahead to the next election, there's still a lot of pitfalls, right? Yeah, I don't think they've got the reputation for fiscal waste as they used to have. Mm. And I, I think Rees was much more aggressive in the chamber, and that's going to come through in terms of them speaking to the media, broader interviews and whatnot. So it is a step change. If you look at the past two years, you know, Starmer's time, you had COVID, you had Ukraine. It required him to adopt quite a conciliatory tone a lot of the time. And now we're coming out of that, you can see the return of partisanship and the return of attacking the government a little mm. bit more. But in, in terms of the next government and, sorry, the next election and where Labour are in the economy, I think it's very tricky for them because yep. oppositions inherit economies. That's how it works. The economy doesn't change just because the government changes. So Reeves and Starmer, they've both tried to go for a very fiscal, a strong fiscal managerial position. And you saw that in Starmer's conference speech. They want to build trust on the economy. That means they're constrained in what they can do going into the next election. Are they going to promise higher spending? Are they, if they do that, they're going to have to massively increase taxes. Because even with this budget, debt to GDP is still set to go to about 97% by 27. So we're not going to see the finances recover in a dramatic way. Uh, and Labour are going to have to inherit that and, and try and come up with a plan, which they're not going to tell you right now, by the way. <laughs> However much we ask, they're not going to yeah. give us a, a clear but I think uh, plan. That's, I, think that, I think that's working in there favour because yeah. I think the idea behind their thinking, behind the Labour Party's thinking is make the, the government own these mistakes. Don't try and put your ideas out there and have them stolen potentially. Mm. Yeah. I also think that Starmer's approach for the last couple of years is, is based on getting to the heart of this issue, yeah. getting, making sure they've got the economic competence. And a lot of people hear that as a, would hear their approach as a criticism. For example, everyone calls Keir Starmer boring. Is boring a bad thing if you're worried that a radical is going to be in charge of the of the economy and you're worried that someone's mm-hmm. going to spend all of your money? Yeah. I think I think that's why. Why else would they brief that they'd written a fourteen thousand word <laughs> essay unless you want to look like very safe instead? Ben, I remember you writing a good piece on this and how what I think it was in 2020 or it was the first time in ten years or so where the public had seen the Conservatives as more extreme than the Labour Party for the oh, first yeah. time ever. Oh. So now the Labour Labour Party was seen as the safe option, the more moderate option, and that's really key because people, as you say, they don't want to vote for extreme radicalism when they have no money. Yeah, so. yeah. And then the scandals you, you mentioned at the start, really. The stuff around oh god, how many have we had? Gavin William, Dominic Rav, Suella Bravo. Sir Gavin Williams. Oh Sir Gavin Williamson <laughs> with the tarantula. Suella Braverman or is it Braverman? Braverman. Braverman. Uh, who else we Braverman? got? A, lit- a litany of people. And this is the thing. All you, all you need to do to be seen as divided and increasingly extreme is to just for the scandal to exist. Yeah. So uh, during the start of, I think, Starmer's leadership, I think it was 2020, when he decided to remove the whip from Jeremy Corbyn, that pushed up the number of voters seeing the Labour Party as divided and extreme. Once you, if, you, if you've got stories of division in the news, well, you're going to be seen as divided. Yeah. You're going to be seen as you have extreme people in the party. You're going to be seen as extreme. These types of stories, Sunak may be, he's better than rock bottom. Liz Trust brought the Conservatives to rock bottom and then Rishi Sunak, whatever his faults and that, far, far be it for me to judge everyone's voting intention, but I presume most of you don't vote Conservative. Is that a fair thing, fair assumption to make, yeah? For, for all his faults and for the fact that he may be Conservative, he's better than Liz Trust. He's seen as more competent than Liz Trust. But that's not enough when you're surrounded by a party that is, that is seen, well, it's like a D-list D cast of cabinet, isn't it? it, it's, it's, it, it it's, a bit, it's a bit depressing, really. Well, let's, but, let's, talk, let's talk about the, yeah. the, prime, the new prime ministers, the third prime minister this year. Yeah. F- first month in, in office, then, because I think he's been in like ne- nearly four weeks now. And he, it doesn't feel like that. It's, yeah, it's very, it feels longer, yeah. How, how do you think he's doing? He, he has a very divided party. Boris Johnson got got thrown out of office and then they've had the whole Liz Trust debacle. He's obviously not going to be leading anything other than a divided party considering what's gone before this year. But has he done the best that he could have done? Yeah, I think you've got to look at why he was there and what the party wanted from him. He was there in one sense to restore economic credibility and if you look at the reactions from the markets to the budget, he did that. We can discuss what economic credibility is but they, we, they prevented the financial collapse that we saw under trust. Secondly, he said he wanted to restore professionalism, integrity and accountability to the government. And that's why these scandals matter a lot, because yeah. his first four weeks, you've had three or four cabinet members embroiled in scandal, completely undermined his argument. 
And that matters because if you look at some of the polling about 2019 voters and why they're, why they're now thinking about voting for Labour or not at least voting for the Conservatives, scandal and integrity is actually quite far up, much more so than the wider public. So it is impacting them and he did need to get a grip on it mm. and he hasn't been able to do it. Ben, how do, yeah. you, how do you think his first month's yeah. gone? It's been an event, really. This is the thing. What could he have been? Could he have been anything better per, yeah. per what you said? It, it, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say, really, because, yeah, you've inherited a divided party. You've inherited a party that's at rock bottom in the polls. The party's up-ish. Labour's lead has gone down from 30 percentage points, crashed to 25, to 20. That's still a lot. You've got a Labour majority, a pretty hefty one there, already in the bag for you. And... This is the thing, he had, if you polled the public on Rishi Sunak, you'd, you'd find a good number of voters quite like him, not a huge amount dislike him. And then when you poll him on, do you trust him with the economy? Do you, do you trust him with your taxes? Do you trust him with the cost of living? Most voters, pretty much, I would say, yeah, cost of living, it's a no, but the economy, yes. Make, sh- make sure you remember there's a difference there. The economy, Sunak is relatively trusted. The cost of living, absolutely not. No one in the Conservatives are trusted on the cost of living. When voters associate the cost of living with the economy, then it's over. And mm. I think they've already got to that stage. Yeah. This is the thing. Sunak has positive traits that the public see, but it's not enough. Again, the Conservative brand has taken over here. We, we, ask, we like to think we, we increasingly, every election year, become a presidential country because we're always voting for the Prime Minister. But really, at the end of the day, we're still, still voting for parties and the conservative brand is still dead in the water really there's a lot of work that needs to be done and i take the view honestly you need to you need to be defeated to recover you need to lose power to recover to do a bit of an bit of r and r and then then get a new leader and start to come from the outside to get in again i think it's interesting the way the conservative party is using little bits of labor's language at the minute i think when when jeremy hunt delivered his autumn statement fiscal event budget. He, he used the words, we, we're going to turn and face the storm, which is, was very similar to Keir Starmer's speech about the, 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 the death of the Queen, when he says, as a country, at this point, we have to turn our collar up and, and face the storm. Yep. But the little, little phrases, I think, are, are interesting, that they must have noticed Starmer's rise in the polls progressively. But I think, looking ahead to the next two years, the economic picture is the thing that makes it most difficult for them. And we're looking at no growth this year, at all, but mm. there are circumstances in which the economy could improve between now and the next election. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the risk for Labour is that they're all of a sudden looking at a, a front page after front page that says polls closing. Mm. And the fear could set in within the yeah, Labour Party. Yeah, there are yeah. many, many things that could go wrong between now and the next election, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, looking at the budget, I was trying to understand the political motivation. What are they trying to achieve here? Because obviously they're talking to the markets, they're talking to MPs, but he's also talking to voters. And I think the only route that they've got in their heads is, OK, we grip this crisis, pretend it wasn't our fault, we get through the next year, hopefully the recession is shallower and ends more quickly than we would have thought. We take responsibility for that. We go into the next general election saying, actually, public finances are better now. We don't need to do all those cuts that we promised and we'll cut tax here or here. So that's, I think, but that's it. That's not exactly a very compelling narrative and I don't think they're going to reverse all their losses at the moment by, by doing that. Yeah. What do, you th- what, do you think, what, what do you think could go wrong for Labour? Yeah, what's the best case scenario? For best case scenario for the Conservatives? Yeah. Right, well, this is the thing. You, you look at the autumn statement and per what you say, it tries to, e- tries to ease the markets. And we, I don't know if any of you are active on Twitter, but myself and Emma Hazlett, we did a Spaces, even though Elon Musk might be tearing that down, where we talk and, and all that kind of stuff. And she said, the markets are probably going to be okay from this. Yeah. They're, they're going to be probably content. And that's what I think the Conservatives, or sorry, Hunt and Sunak are trying to do. They're trying to give you a little bit of stability, but of course you're going to feel the squeeze. Of course you're going to feel an increase, increase to, the, to, to fuel bills and all the rest of it. But they want to appear as if, as if they are pushing some level of stability. Now, we know Sunak, Sunak probably isn't going to leave as Conservative leader. We probably, probably, <laughs> you know, can, oh, we never really know, do we? But I, I'm going to go out on a limb and probably say Rishi Sunak will be Prime Minister by the next election and that there will be much change. He is the Prime Minister that will face Keir Starmer in the Leeds debates and all that when it, whenever it comes, OK? And, and that yeah. is better than Liz Truss. That is better than Boris Johnson. That is a stable leader. They're going to try and go hard on a perception that they are the stable choice, mm-hmm. and they're going to try and sort of 
convince voters that this cost of living rise, it's, it's, it's a world problem, it's a Ukrainian mm -hmm. problem, it's, 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 it's out of our hands basically and everyone's facing it. So to be honest, we made the best of a bad bunch. That's a, that is a quite convoluted message. It's, it's quite, quite hard to put that across. And you know what? It's it reminded me of, a, of two elections, 2010 and 1979. 1978, you had the winter of discontent. Mm -hmm. You had the strikes. But when you look at the GDP, when you look at the living standards, when you look at wages, there was a recovery. Things were getting okay. And James, James Callaghan actually was actually quite a popular, re relatively popular guy, but his party was not. That reminds me of Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives there. But what happened... As James Callaghan wrote himself, he felt there was a change in the wind and the country just wanted a change anyway. And then you go to 2010 as well. GDP was recovering. Brown, Gordon Brown did get a handle on the economy at that time, despite the threats that we were going to be like Greece for 24 hours until Britain collapses like Greece or, or, or whatever like that. And there, is, there is a moment when the country just says, OK, maybe it's time for an alternative. Maybe it's time to try the other guys. And I think we have reached that already. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From The New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And on that note, we'll try you guys. Who would like to? Who would like to ask us a question? And we've got a mic, I believe, somewhere. Do you want to do the, now? It's time to. We like to call. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. I should do on the. Yeah. I'll, I'll, a new, a new show, really usual well. host will be telling me off. <laughs> and now it's time for. Oh, you ask. You us. ask us. There we go. Ben's normally Chester <laughs> down the line, so it's always yeah. a five-second delay. So I'm glad you kept that this time. <laughs> no, 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 Even though you live up to the value we're doing. This, this, this lady here would, would like to got a hand up first. Thanks, guys. Hiya. So I th we haven't talked about the unions yet and all the strikes yeah. coming and just wondered what your picture is on that because that will really help to break the government. Poll tax riots, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think there are two ways in, in which that's... Well, I think it's difficult for the Labour Party because it's, it's, it's embedded in the public's mind that the, the, the long and historic link that the Labour Party has with the trade union movement. So I think we've got, what, nurses potentially going on strike for the first time. Mm. Which, is, which is remarkable, which is a terrible headline for the government. But if that leads to very strained public services or, or bad headlines, it's, it's very, it may be easy for Rishi Sunak to point more in Labour's direction on that. So I think Kistama got an awful lot of flack for not going to the picket lines. And I think the months ahead, when we have some of these see these strikes and it becomes a real question for the Labour Party. I think, I think he'll probably people will look back on that moment and go oh yeah, I think Keir Starmer was right about that actually. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I, I agree. This period going forwards now is there's a major risk we're going to get massive public discontent. It's the biggest mm. drop in standard of living for 50 years. And that's over a two-year period. Mm. And then on terms of the strikes, you look at the money that's been given to departments for pay rises, it only accounts for about a 2% rise each year, which obviously is way off inflation, which means we're going to get even more strikes. So that is, yeah, it's, it could get quite nasty and angry, I think, in the next two years, because we have to remember we're only at the start of the cost of living crisis at the moment. It's November. We, it, the energy price is still going to be extremely expensive in two years time the price guarantees going to three thousand pounds on average from april so yeah it's going to get worse and i think that is it's going to make politics a bit more angry i think 
Yeah, I mean, people are justifiably angry, though, considering just how much less money they're, they're going to have. It's, it's very difficult for the government to just continually pretend that it's this troublesome union. A lot of it because of the decisions that they made this week. A lot of people will feel a lot of sympathy for those going on strike. This is kind of... It's, it'll be an interesting test of just how the government... How the, how the public view striking workers. Yeah, yeah. When was the first train strike? Was that March, April, we're talking? That's a good question. Yeah. Anyone remember? June, was it? June. Yeah. When we had... Some, the... Someone didn't get a train on yeah. <laughs> June. Well, that sounded very passive. <laughs> when we had the first rail strikes, and when uh, Mike, Mick, Mike... Mike. Mick Lynch. Mike Lynch, yeah. It's not, no, no. Is it Mick Lynch? No, it's not. Mick Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> when he appeared on the national stage, at the, at the very outset, to be fair, I think it was 45% of, 45% of Britons didn't support the strikes and 40% mm-hmm. did. Then after a few strikes, it edged to parity. And then round about now, a slim plurality of Britons just about to support the strikes. And, and attitudes to Mr. Lynch are, 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 are relatively quite positive. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is the thing. It, you win election, I think, you, you, you tend to have a good election campaign if the mood music of the nation, if the mood music of the campaign is in your favour or aids certain narratives. So more strikes equals angry country, country out of control, Edward Heath's who governs Britain, not you. Okay? Mm. It's, it's sort of, it's sort of that, that kind of stuff. So more strikes will aid that, absolutely. For the, the Labour Party, though, I imagine, to be fair, this is the thing with Keir Starmer, he is always... He's, overly cautious, isn't he? Too overly cautious in the eyes of some people. And so I imagine he's going to be taking a very backseat view about the strike, but perhaps understandably, agreeably or disagreeably for that. And, and so you, you do have to feel there is a risk when it comes to more strikes, he will be seen as a guy on the sidelines again. Mm. There, 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 was, there were, of course, conflicting accusations during the COVID crisis when Starmer was accused of being too supportive of the government and then being accused of being to try, trying to exploit the situation. You get, there is a risk that when, when this country just becomes that little bit more chaotic than we have been for the past 20 years, when, when our political leaders have grown up under New Labour and all that kind of stuff, that perhaps he'll be seen as just too far on the sidelines. I, I, I just wonder what this moment, if, if, if nurses do go on strike, it'll be a unique moment in in our political history and we have such a a strong connection with the nhs with carers particularly after the covid pandemic i just think it'll be absolutely fascinating to see how that unfolds and where public opinion ends on it right who who this lady here and then then Um, welcome to i almost hesitate to raise this but i think brexit is still the elephant in the room yeah the much vaunted trade deals either don't exist or are in the favors of our partners like australia you find there aren't enough workers to to deal with some of the key industries in the country and small businessmen in particular tear their hair out because of the bureaucracy of exporting to Europe. Mm -hmm. However, the Conservatives seem as though they want to consign the whole debate to history and not talk about it. Labour seems to be afraid of offending its voters in the North who were were in favour of Brexit. How do you think that topic will play out over the next couple of years and in the next election? That's a, a very interesting and quite broad question. I think we've seen a little bit of it in the last couple of weeks when I, I don't know if anybody saw this new story, but Environment Secretary George Houston all of a sudden decided that the, tra- the trade deal that he yeah, with, with, good, us, with Australia and New Zealand was actually really bad for British farmers. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, yeah, you, you, were, you were the yeah. Environment Secretary, maybe <laughs> you should have resigned. I just think you will see an awful lot of this. You might see a lot of Conservatives that kind of want to distance themselves to, from some of the, the mess that's been created with the economy. But I also think, if your question's more towards might the Labour Party change its, its view, I think I, I really don't see that happening before the next election. But Because they've, they've said no, no re-entry to the single market, no, no rejoining the European Union, that's their, that's their current position because they don't want to reopen a lot of the old divisions. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a political logic in that because you have, to, you, know, you have to win a mandate and be able to speak for those groups that as those in the north are a lot of them losing the most from 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 brexit but voted most heavily for it i think he has to win a mandate from those people to be able to speak for them so i can understand why he doesn't necessarily want to to weigh into it Fred, freddie has views i can tell <laughs> i can tell <laughs> uh yeah i think what we're getting now is 
a better picture about the economic impact of Brexit. That was always going to take quite a few years, and the, project, the predictions about feeling the impact overnight was wrong because obviously that was the vote that wasn't actually leaving. Now we've left, we're starting to see some of the figures on this. The OBR said it's reduced our trade intensity by 15%. I mean, these figures are dripping through now, and as the economy gets worse, people, I think, are going to change their perspective on where we can place blame and what's reasonable and what's not. But it is tricky for Labour. We're not at the point where we're discussing rejoining or anything like that. But what they are doing, which is quite wise, Rachel Reeves did this this morning, is try and associate the economic pain from Brexit with the government. So it's the government's Brexit deal. That's the phrase. It's not Brexit. It's the government's Brexit deal, which is a good way, I think, for them to get around some of the, uh, the questions. And then why, why, why is it not spoken about more? Well, part of the reason is because at the moment, the main debate is about Northern Ireland and the protocol. And that's about veterinary agreements. That's about the ECJ. It's all quite technical stuff. It's not very motivating, particularly for people in Great Britain. So I think that there's some of the reasons. But I, I, I do think there's a, a new move towards acknowledging some of the economic setbacks from Brexit, and then that's going to enter the political language in acceptable ways. But yeah, it's going to take a while. We're not going to be talking about rejoining or anything like that in the next two years. But the government's already liberalised some of its immigration policies, right? A little. And I think cause there was a really interesting front page, I think it was the Eye this morning, that kind of number 11, Jeremy Hunt big remainer at the time, he was ma- had been making points behind the scenes telling number 10 that it was if we wanted economic growth that would have to include different immigration policies, yeah. which is it's interesting that, a story yeah, the OBR, that, it interesting that a story like that would make its way onto the front page. OBR, yeah. yeah, the OBR assumed higher immigration over the next oh, the, years. It's yeah, central to their forecast. I mean, the, one of the reasons they said they could offset some of the other impacts is because they predict higher immigration. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's key in this it's ha- debate. It's going to happen. So. And they keep thinking but more a, a public opinion slightly changed on, on immigration mm. as well, hasn't it? People are, are slightly more relaxed about it because that was obviously mm. the, the big debate at the time. Yeah, yeah. We, are, we are not the country we were 12 years ago. We're not the country of 2010 or 2015. We, we don't have a 10 to 15% of the country voting for a, a radical right party because it's been subsumed by the Conservatives or they feel content with the way the country is. They, they don't bother voting. There's a, high, there's a great lo- level of apathy out there. I don't know how many of you vote Labour or so-and-so or old enough to remember he 1990. He's trying to get you to yeah, yeah, I, w- I want to do a voting intention poll of all <laughs> yeah, of you. He can't help himself. He just wants <laughs> to sorry, poll I people. love to poll everything. I'm also a parish councillor as well. I did a survey of my parish wards as well. So it was awfully fun. But you, you speak to you do, you do speak to Labour voters and they, they are strongly Labour, but they're not exactly enthusiastic about it, are they? They're, they're quite, it doesn't feel yeah. like 1997, no. even though the national numbers are like 1997, if not more. Anyway, I have an answer, a question to answer. Immigration, how, we are a different country than we were 12 years ago. Immigration, let, let's, uh, in 2010, if you ever listen back to, to the, the debate of Brown, Blair, no, Brown, Blair, Brown, Brown, Brown Cameron, <laughs> Clegg, in 2010, immigration featured heavily then. And it was yeah. the second, third, sometimes number one issue that mattered most to voters. It was the same in 2015. That's why Nigel Farage always was able to push the parties in another way. Labour's response was a controls on immigration mug, mm. a mug which had controls on immigration on it, which mm. did nothing. <laughs> but there we are. Immigration as an issue has fallen down the ladder of political issues that matter most to voters completely. Around about 10% of the country say it matters most to them. The recent channel crossings has pushed it up slightly, although to be honest, it doesn't feel like a long-term thing. Attitudes to immigration have, though, shifted, I wouldn't say considerably. We are still a nation that is more pro-restriction than pro-freedom. Don't kid yourselves. We, we, we have moved on from UK. We have moved on from Nigel Farage. But if you ask most Britons, immigration should be better controlled. Immigration should be tighter. And if you had the policy pledge of we will bring immigration down to the tens of thousands. If you look, most Britons want immigration down to the tens of thousands. At the moment, we're projecting it to be 200,000 every year. That's what the OBR yeah. is expecting. So we are more pro-restriction than we are pro-freedom. But the amount of Britons that are vexed about it that want their borders controlled, shut down, that's really died. There used to be about 20% of the country who were anti-immigration in the extreme. They're down to about 10% now. There's a middle, there's a growing content minority, soon to be majority of the country that are kind of like, okay, I like immigration, but I want controls of it. But in answer to your question, I think when we have another event like we had... Sorry, you did... In answer to your question, I think we're going to have 
another statement like like the one we've just had this week next year as well as a, as mm. well as budgets and they're all going to confirm that Brexit has not been good for for the economy and considering the situation we're going to be in over the next year which is no growth recession I do think it becomes a a question people are going to want answers to but that it's not it's not on any party's agenda too heavily at the moment yeah. could um, i add something about that actually about yes. brexit more specifically you can't oh, pull her though well i can't <laughs> <laughs> no but i'm going to make assumptions about a cambridge-based event really about in which way you probably vote sorry i'm from the north i'm quite a i'm, I'm a snob about the south if you do you consider yourself in the south no oh you do okay fair enough then around about 32 percent of the country say brexit was the right decision around about 52, 53, mm. 54, sometimes as high as 58% of the country say Brexit was a wrong decision. That's a lot of not leavers going to wrong, saying they regret it. That's just a lot of leavers becoming apathetic and not caring anymore. They just say, oh, it's over as an issue. We move on, really. Yeah, what, what I was going to say. We'll move on because... Uh, yeah, and this gentleman would like to ask a question. <laughs> If, as it seems, Jeremy Corbyn won't be allowed to run for the Labour Party in the next election, will he run as, do you think he'll run as an independent and will Labour field a candidate against him? I, I think Labour will field a, 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 a Labour candidate in, in his seat in Islington North, for sure. And be, because he's not a member of the, the PLP, he won't, be, he won't be selected as the candidate. It, just, it won't be possible. It's not possible for him to, to stand again. I think it'll be troublesome for them in that seat because there will be, if he does run, there will be a lot of Labour members that want to campaign for him because he's very popular locally. So it would be a big problem for them in terms of potentially expelling members. I don't know how they'd deal with that situation, really. It's, it remains to be seen whether he's, he's going to stand. I've, we've heard lots of different rumours about quite what he's going to do. London we, we keep hearing yeah. London Mayor, but then that gets knocked down. I think a lot of people around Jeremy Corbyn would just like want the press to continue to talk about Jeremy Corbyn to keep him in the game, keep him viable. But I, I haven't detected a great deal of hunger from the man himself to, to stand. But, but he does have a big support base around him and they may yet convince him to, to just keep going, really. But he might just fancy standing in his allotment. I don't, I don't know. What, what do you think, then? Uh, Corbyn, yeah, he's not going to be the Labour candidate, as you say. He's, he's, no. not, he's, he's not in the PLP. If he stands, uh, this is the thing. Do, do, do you want to know about his chances, how well he will do? Not well. Not well. He'll, he'll do well. In a, this is, we do, to be fair, overstate the value of independent candidates and how well they do. I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. And what was it? Beaconsfield. 2019, Dominic Grieve. He, oh, he did really well. What? He did quite well. He did quite well, but did he win the seat? Nope. No. <laughs> and Don, what, what did Beaconsfield vote in 2016? Remain. What did Be Beaconsfield is basically your, it, it's one of those blue wall seats, right? That, that should be swinging to the Liberal Democrats. It will probably now. Not Beaconsfield, but most, a good number of blue wall seats. Independents don't normally win, win well because how can I explain it? Because the national picture takes over. Mm. And there's a good number of voters in Islington who, however active your CLP is, however active your local party is, you just won't reach them because they will always trudge out election time and always vote on the national issues. I think Islington, uh, and, and perhaps maybe not London more generally, but Islington is very socially left-wing. Economically, it's about as left-wing as probably the country, to be honest with you. We do tend to overstate how left-wing London is. Socially, we are a lot more liberal, so we, I'm not a Londoner. <laughs> I say really disgusting <laughs> with that. No. <laughs> Socially, London is very liberal. It is much more liberal than the rest of the country. But economically, it's pretty much on par. Yeah. On par, really. Uh, and so there's no, nothing much, much to say there. Corbyn will stand. He could probably get, I don't know, between 10 and 30%. And that, that's not going to win you the seat in what is a seat that almost every councillor is Labour. Can I pull you two guys on an issue? Do you think the Conservative Party attacks on the Labour Party about Corbyn, about Starmer campaigning for Corbyn at the last election, do you think they're landing? No, not really. Only they've been widely mocked. He's mentioned this three times now at PMQs. He says you can't trust Starmer's judgment because he supported Corbyn. I think people have got over that a little bit and that's why Labour's doing so well in the polls because they accept that Starmer's got rid of the Corbynite and they see that and that's why they support him. So I don't, I don't think it's a massive problem for Labour, to be honest. Yeah, it, it, it's had yeah. no impact whatsoever. Had no, impact. no one associates that anymore. This is, this, is, this is always something you always... Rewind yourself back to 2019. You do, you do remember some of the Labour attacks on the Conservatives. We've already had nine years of them. It's time for a change, isn't it? But the thing is, Boris Johnson's Conservatives were seen by the public as a world away 
from David Cameron's Conservatives. There were a good number of voters out there who thought, actually, these are new kids on the block, even though they're not, even though they're the same old. And, and so they thought, OK, we're going to vote for a fresh face. Starmer's Labour feels like a fresh face to voters. They don't associate Starmer with Corbyn at all. He has, if you feel as a Labour member, he's moved the party too far to the right, the country probably feels that he has moved it very significantly. And, and so the association is just not there. There's a gentleman here at the front who'd like to ask a question, and I see you guys. It strikes me that there, there was a lot of anger for quite a long time in politics in Britain. Yeah. And, and I don't know if Sunak doesn't make me angry. I feel exhausted, to be honest. I don't know if that, if, if, is that something that we're seeing in the polling? It makes me wonder about maybe turnout, whether turnout will be low because there's just exhaustion, and, and if it will be low, what that will mean, if that will have an impact on, on the result. I think my, my feeling is that the, we're not going to see an early election, so that means it's going to be in almost in a two years before we go back to the polls, and this kind of could be a bit of a, bit of a return of, of boring now for, for sort of the immediate year, maybe. Other than the cost of living crisis being a big issue, I don't feel like there's going to be more and more and more political turmoil, potentially, because I think the Conservatives won't want to cause any more damage, and Labour will just be very disciplined in trying to make its case. You might see it level off for a while, so that that might stabilise things. People might feel a bit less exhausted by the constant Brexit, crazy budgets, all of these things going on at the same time and making people feel exhausted by it. But I think turnout, most elections, is not, doesn't differ too wildly, does it? No. Well, there's something actually that further to the, the, the lady's point over there about Brexit, actually, that I wanted to mention that definitely about differential turnout. 2017 general election and 2019 election, a lot of Leave, leave voters stayed at home and it's stayed that way since then. In 2019, 84%, around about 84, between 80 and 90% of those that voted Remain in 2016 came out again at the ballot box, okay? And around about 70% of those that voted Leave came out again at the ballot box. And despite that, of course, Boris Johnson won quite the large, big majority in the House of Commons. I, I think we do have differential turnout in some respects, you just don't really see it on the face of it. I do think though, because right now the Tory base is so apathetic, because the Tory base feels so unenthused about the next election, because so many feel like there's no, not, a, not, a, not a chance in hell that they're going to win the next election, they may, and because a good, because a good number of them are okay, quite content with Starmer, they will stay at home. Something often forgotten about 1997 is a lot of that Labour landslide came down to the fact that Tory voters just stayed at home, okay? And we, we expect, if you look at the polling, if you trust the polling now, that's probably what is going to happen again. Exhaustion among certain voters, absolutely. Particularly, if you want to go back to red wall and blue wall, there's a, there's a lot of affluent southerners who are angry enough to switch their vote, and there are some less well-off northerners who are just so apathetic enough to not vote altogether. To be honest with you, I, I expect that if there was an election today, you would have places like the whole of West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire, going Labour again, but on a lower turnout. And then you have places like Cambridgeshire and Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, basically all flipping red slash yellow on pretty good turnout. So that, that, that's what the numbers say right now. But we have, we're not in the middle of an election campaign. And what does an election campaign do? It tees you up. It excites you. At least it tries to. It excites me. And so it's meant to get you out of the vote. So at the, <laughs> so at the moment, yeah, apathy is differential, but we don't know if it will stay that way come the next election. Yeah, I, I wonder if some of your questions speak to the fact that Labour doesn't have much of a policy agenda at the moment. There's no, they don't feel like a change party yet because there's not much to vote for at the moment. And I wonder if... And that's an impression that a lot of people have, I think, and that, that would change an election when you have a prospectus which people can vote for. We're going to see two years of problems, you would hope, by the, by the time we get to the next election, that some, some politicians will come up with some solutions that, that, that feel inspiring to, you know, childcare, yeah. housing, all of these issues that you see in your communities all the time. You would think that there'd mm. be some solutions by then. Let's go to this, this gentleman here. This, this lovely gentleman has had his hand Can we get a microphone at the front? What about a second coming for Johnson? If the polls stay as they are... <laughs> oh, God! The, they, the, John, the mood in the room changes. Um, there are an enormous number of Tory MPs and especially mem Tory members mm. who are furious with Sunak. They believe that John Johnson was betrayed. He's a terrific campaigner. Yeah. It's a nightmare. 
scenario. Yeah. I think, speaking to Tory MPs, lots of them are not in that place at all at the moment. They also share this sense of despair. You speak to some Tory MPs, they're literally speaking to recruiters at the moment to try and get a job after the next election. So the, the atmosphere in the Conservative Party is, let's just hunker down for two years. We have Sunak, we are not going to change him now. I think the, the interesting question is what happens after the next election. Is Sunak going to stick around and be an opposition leader for five years? Is he going to want to do that? Or is he going to want to go off, return to business or whatever it is? Maybe that's the point where Johnson uh, could make a return. I wouldn't write him off. I, I just think lots of MPs at the moment are just not in that place at all. I disagree, right? I think, yeah. I, think it, I think Conservative MPs may get so depressed about their electoral prospects that they might press the Boris button. And he's boosterish Boris. Like, that might be when he... And, and I don't think his hunger to do the job will ever go away, no. ever. I, I would agree with Freddie on that. I don't think he'd want to be an opposition leader, though. So I think if, if, yeah. if, if he was planning a return of any kind, it would be before, before the election than, than after it. Yeah, it's very different over the past nine months. It's very different fighting for number 10 than to fight for Tory leadership and be on the other side of the Commons. It's a different sort of prize, and I think you'll see a different sort of dynamic if they are put into the opposition. Yeah, he's been Prime Minister. He doesn't. I don't think he'll fancy being anything other than mm. World King <laughs> once again. I think there was a gentleman at the back there, wasn't it, who had his hand up first, and then the lady behind behind him. I have a question. I think I know the answer to, but. What will the next Labour government do about our first-past-the-post voting system, if anything? I, I, it won't be in the manifesto, as I understand it. Not least because there are many Labour MPs who would lose their seat under a, under a different system, under a, a proportional mm. representation system. Yeah, yeah. It, it, for, I know the, the Labour Party activists voted in favour of of PR at a conference just, just back in September, but it'll now get kicked into the what they have the National Policy Forum, and I think they'll look at it for quite a long time, and then the parties ruling NEC will go, nope, <laughs> and it will not make it into the manifesto, I wouldn't have thought. And the only other route you could have seen to the a Labour government changing the voting system, I think, would have been if they were going to be in coalition with the Lib Dems. And given where the polling currently is, I don't, don't know if they'll need to be in coalition with anybody. But all of that could change, of course, because of all the things we've spoken about. Then what do you think? What Rachel said, really. If, if you're going to get a large majority, why would you vote away that? Why would you vote? Why, as a turkey, would you vote for Christmas? Why would you vote to the end of your political careers? And another thing as well, this is one thing I, I think, personally, I'm in favour of electoral reform. I think would do better. I don't like STV. If anyone knows what that means, single transferable vote, ranked voting, one, two, three, four, five. Don't like that. That's, that's, that's silly. What I would prefer instead, I, I do believe in the constituency link, but you should also have a list system to be able to. You're an AMS man. What? You're an AMS man. I'm an AMS man. Open list. It's the only place to be. Yeah, but open list so you don't, so the parties don't stitch up the rankings. You vote for which one you like, really. And that's the proportional bit. I think the minute we get electoral reform is the minute the Labour Party dies because it's such a broad church. It will become, fall into so many different parties. And then you'll end up, I think, in a situation similar to Denmark, where you have a workers' party, a socially liberal party, a socialist party, a green socialist party. You have all these parties willing to work together. You probably, to be honest with you, electoral reform may end, uh, after a few decades, perhaps the adversarial nature of the UK system. I think, I think we'll probably go that way. But the likelihood of it happening under a Labour Party with such a large majority is, as you say, really quite, quite low. Yeah, yeah I'd rate the chances is quite, quite low this go-around. The, the lady behind, yeah, oh, she already has a mic. Yep. <laughs> Just interested to hear your views on the fact that the disaster that was Liz Truss, what has that done to the chances of England ever having a female prime minister in the future? And has it put women off going into politics, do you think? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought so within the Tory party itself. I'm not sure that came up as an issue. I, don't, I have not sensed a, a feeling among Tory MPs that, they, that that was a massive thing in terms of her gender. I don't know, Rachel, did you, did you hear different? Or? No, I think, I think that you that a lot online from, yeah. from activists to, I think she gets what, thick... Lizzie, which is a horrible thing to think. She's a very well-educated woman, whatever you think about her politics. She's not, not thick. And there's a lot, you see a lot of gendered insults about her online. I don't think that's transferred into the, the, the Conservative Parliamentary Party, though. Um, 
I, I think Labour's next leader will probably be a woman. The Keir Starmer gave an interview yesterday, actually, with the Times with Rachel Sylvester, and I think he, said he confirmed for the first time that he, he believed his successor absolutely had mm. to be a woman, and I think, I think his opinion will probably matter if he's going to be the guy who wins the next election for the Labour Party. But they've, they've had female candidates before and never, never voted for them. But I, I don't feel like the chances of another female Prime Minister have necessarily gone down because of Liz Truss. I think, I think it's just exposed the way our politics has always been. I'll always remember a, a data point, because I am also a data journalist from time to time, where the level of abuse directed at uh, female Labour MPs, disproportionately Labour, particularly Diane Abbott, was so yeah, massive. The, the level of abuse well, on, on Twitter, that, that Twitter really struggled to deal with, or rather sometimes in, in, in some people's opinions chose not to deal with, it's always been there. It's always existed there. Liz Truss's appearance as Prime Minister for 49 days, was it? Really only just, just reminded of us just how abusive our politics can be. And it's never changed. And will it change? I don't know. What do you need to change that? I don't know. We've got time for one more question. Yeah, as somebody else had their hand up, I think. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Speaking of second comings, Mr. Trump announced his intention to run again. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I also had a really quick question about, do you think Elon Musk's complete burning the house down approach to Twitter will have any effect on electoral happenings? I know those are two enormous questions. <laughs> yeah, and we've, got, we've only got a couple of minutes, but we'll have a crack. Donald Trump, I, I think he's, because of the midterms, he's, he's De Sanchez is now like the the... It seems like he's really going to be the, the next Republican candidate, given he's kind of like Trumpism without Trump in a, in a lot of ways. And he's taken a really interesting approach in, in Florida as well, particularly over being really loose with lockdown rules and what have you, and seems to be interestingly kind of rewarded for that by the, by the electors there. And he just seems to be charismatic, seems to be, what does Trump call him? He calls him, oh... De sanctimonious. Yeah. A rare use so, so he already see, he already sees him as a threat, right? I don't know. I feel like I feel like the world's moved on from Donald Trump, but maybe I'm a hopeless optimist. And Twitter, oh my God, I'll I'll, I'll let someone else feel that. I'm one. praying for the end of Twitter, <laughs> uh, but it make our jobs much easier. We would actually do more work and it'd be less focused on Twitter. But I don't think that's going to happen at the moment. On Trump, I think he, if you actually look at some of the Republican polling on Trump, he, he's just in terms of who would vote in the primaries and whatnot. He's still doing quite well. I know the establishment of the Republican Party are trying to get rid of him as uh, quickly as possible, and they prefer DeSantis, but among uh, Republican voters, I think he's still polling reasonably well, so I, I wouldn't bet against him, personally. Mm -hmm. I, I take a different view over Twitter. <laughs> I, I, feel, I, I think Twitter is quite a valuable asset that we all love to... Excuse my language. No, I'm not going to... I'm not going to that we all, no that we all to love to hate. But I don't know how many of you are on Twitter. I'm not going to do a poll again, but it is the way... If you weren't using the Russian slash Ukrainian social media network, that was the, Twitter was the first site that broadcast the images of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was the first time where we got CCTV footage of these Russian paratroopers landing on the border checkpoints of Crimea. It was put on Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is a lot more of a, is more of a valuable resource than perhaps we recognize this, this Elon Musk fella. I, I, I think so long as users have confidence in it and not just, so long, as you, so long as the mass of users keep using it, it will continue to exist whatever Elon does. On Trump, on DeSantis, I think we underestimate Trump at our peril because there is a body of voters out there who don't normally speak to pollsters, who don't normally engage with the system, who don't normally engage with institutions, who market researchers of time and time again often understated the power of and their presence in elections. The midterms was a big surprise because when you put abortion on the ballot paper, when you put really fundamental issues of human rights and, uh, and, and the cost of living on the ballot paper, to be honest with you, voters will swing to the Democrats on that front, even though, of course, there was a slight swing away from them, but it was less than anyone expected. So I, I think when Trump appears on the ballot paper, new voters or the old voters will reappear on the ballot paper. It's whether or not the Republican primaries will be able to get rid of him. DeSantis is definitely one, to, one guy to watch, absolutely. He, he is a family man, as you say. He, he won, he, he's made Florida a safe state. That used to be the swing state that I was only age six when it happened. It used to be the swing state that disappointed half the world in, 2000, in the year 2000. Mm. Now it's a safe Republican state, okay? DeSantis is doing something. Yeah, watch you, out for him. You also have lots of, you had a lot of Trump-backed candidates, right, who, who went to the polls saying, 
I, I, I don't believe that a last election result was, was, was valid and yeah. a lot of them just did not win their seats. So yeah, just, yeah. I think people will move. Yeah. move but move just on. worth bearing in mind as well, half the Republican, half of Republican Congress are election deniers, half aren't. That is a very split yeah. Republican base. You think they've gained control of the House, congratulations to them, but they're not a united force. It's, it's basically, imagine the parliamentary Labour Party being half Corbynite, half not. Imagine the fireworks that that will cause. That's where we are right now with the Republicans. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Wearmouth, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker. If you have a question for the podcast, go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. The producer has been Adrian Bradley and the music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.